Hello. Uh, greetings to all those of you who are gathered with us to worship our great God and Savior Jesus Christ this morning. I invite you to turn in the Word of God to the book of Jonah, which is in the Old Testament, and we are looking especially at chapter 1, verses 7 through 16 this morning. Uh, as you turn there, let me also wish all of the mothers a, a very happy Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day. I uh, hope you'll have time with your family today. Your, all of your striving on behalf of your family is celebrated, acknowledged, honored. Uh, we're thankful for all that you do. So Jonah chapter 1, verses 7 through 16. Let's hear God's word together. And they said to one another, by the way, I should say, if you weren't here last week, there's a violent storm in the background. Pagan, that is non-Jewish mariners, uh, are frightened because they think the, the ship might break apart. Uh, the prophet of the Lord has not been as faithful to his calling as he should have been, as we'll see, and is responsible for the storm. And uh, this is a crisis moment. That's, that's the background. So they refers to these pagan sailors. And they said to one another, come let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told him. He had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. But they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, you are God from everlasting to everlasting. You have no beginning and no end. You do as you please in heaven above and on earth below. No one can contend against your will. You have made all things by your powerful word from the greatest archangel, the lowliest insect. All things are in your hands. Our lives are in your hands. We are your creatures, and everything that we have, we owe to you. Father, we praise you. We acknowledge that you are the great and glorious creator and sustainer of heaven and earth. Father, we confess that our thoughts so often fail to be gripped by your majesty, your holiness, your transcendent greatness. So often we have small thoughts of you and therefore live lives of rebellion and disobedience. We pray, Father, this morning that you would increase our awareness of your majesty and greatness. Grant us to stand in awe of who you are and grant us to live our lives from that posture of reverent awe. 
Grant that in absolutely everything that we do, your greatness would be reflected back to you. Father, this morning we hunger and thirst for you. We want to behold your majesty. And we pray that through your word and the working of your spirit this morning, you would graciously make yourself known in our midst for our good and your glory. And we pray that you'd bless this message as a means to that end. Amen. When we read scripture, there are certain categories of people that we half expect would oppose God, would rebel against his word, would oppose his people. So the Philistines, for example, we're not surprised when they oppose the people of God. That is what they characteristically do. We're not surprised that they violate the law of God when the Ark of the Covenant uh, enters their land. That is what Philistines do. We're not surprised when the kings of northern, the northern kingdom uh, rebel against God and promote idolatry. That's what northern kings do, right? Uh, they're true to form. What we are surprised by is when a prophet of the Lord receives the word of the Lord and then turns his back on it and runs in the opposite direction. That's exactly what happens at the beginning of the book of Jonah. That is, that is the great act of disobedience that sets the ball in motion. We saw last week that the word of the Lord comes to his prophet. And instead of doing what a prophet is supposed to do, which is receive the word of the Lord, in this case the word of the Lord said go to Nineveh, uh, declare that their deeds are wicked and that judgment is impending. That's what your mission is. Instead of taking the word of the Lord and going to Nineveh, Jonah does the opposite. He not only refuses to do what God has told him, but he runs in the opposite direction towards the city of Tarshish. He, he, he is so repulsed by what God is asking of him that he is trying to thwart God's purpose from being accomplished. So he's running in the opposite direction. He finds some pagan mariners, uh, he gets on a ship, and he goes his way. But of course, there is no evading the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And so the Lord, as we saw, hurled a great wind upon the, on the, upon the sea. Uh, Jonah is roused from his slumber. Uh, he's told by the captain, what are you doing? We're about to die. There's a massive, you pray to your God, maybe you can help us. And so that's where we stopped last week, and that's where we pick up today. The, the, there's a violent storm. The ship appears to be ready to break apart, and there are no clear answers. There are going to be three things that we notice today as we look at this passage. First, we will see disobedience is very wicked because God is very great. Disobedience is very wicked because God is very great. Second, the disobedience of God's people brings harm to unbelievers. Trouble, not blessing. And third, even stubborn disobedience cannot frustrate God's purpose. Even stubborn disobedience cannot frustrate God's purpose. So by the time we get to verse 7, these pagan mariners conclude that someone on that ship has done something to offend one of the gods, and they need to find out who the guilty party is. Now keep in mind at this stage, uh, the mariners don't know what we the readers know. There's a dramatic tension. We know why there's a storm. We know who the guilty party is, uh, but they do not. And so the, the, they conclude that this storm, given the sheer ferocity of the storm, uh, this must, there's something unusual about this. It must be some sort of punishment for some sort of evil, and there's somebody in our, uh, in our midst who is guilty. So what they do is they cast 
lots. Uh, this was a device for randomly selecting uh, someone, like you might use uh, the short straw to, f to pick someone for something. It's a device for random selection. The casting of lots was used to identify the guilty party. Presumably it was preceded by some kind of prayer or to identify the guilty party. And sure enough, the rebellious prophet Jonah is singled out. Because, of course, we know that even seemingly random things that happen in this world are themselves subject to the plan and authority of the Lord. Proverbs 16.33, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. The Lord is in control even over seemingly random events, even over the casting of lots, the casting of dice, if you like. And so the lots come back, and Jonah the Hebrew, the reticent prophet, is guilty before the Lord. He is the one who is responsible for this violent storm that has been unleashed on the sailors. So, of course, then, uh, he's bombarded with questions. Uh, they're trying to find out, A, which God have they offended? That seems to be the thrust of their questions, and that's confirmed by Jonah's response. So which God have we offended, and how exactly has this God been offended? And interestingly, in verse 8, the first question is somewhat redundant. Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. Well, didn't the lots just tell them who, on whose account? Uh, it seems to be that they're, they're, they're trying to be careful. They're trying to confirm uh, that Jonah is in fact guilty, so they ask him. Uh, and then they ask him, what is your occupation? Now, what is his occupation? He's a prophet of the Lord. But interestingly, even though Jonah answers every single one of the other questions, he doesn't answer this question. I wonder why. Uh, I mean, the most obvious explanation is that he's a prophet on the run. He's a bad prophet, not doing what God has called him to do. And so he's sheepish about sharing his occupation. Where do you come from? What is your country? In the ancient world, the people you were from was tightly connected to the God you worshipped. To know the people is to know the God. And so that's the thrust, that's the trajectory of their questions. What God have you offended? And then here is Jonah's uh, Theology 101 lesson for these pagan mariners. Verse 9, here's his confession of faith. And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord. Now, if you know the Old Testament scriptures at all, that expression, the fear of the Lord, is used to characterize the attitude of the godly towards the Lord. There is a reverence toward God Almighty that is reflected in a life of obedience to his commands. That's what it means to fear the Lord. But do you notice the irony here? Notice Jonah's profession of faith and how that jars with his conduct. I fear the Lord, but I'm actually in rebellion against his word. I'm not going to do what he says, but I fear the Lord. This isn't the first or last time we see a discrepancy between a profession and the way someone actually lives. You can have impeccable doctrine, as in fact Jonah does, we'll see in a moment. Uh, you can have right doctrine and still live in rebellion against God. Right doctrine by itself is not sufficient to produce obedience. We need to live in accord with what we confess to be true, and that's what Jonah struggles to do here. But he identifies himself as one who fears the Lord. And then he describes the Lord as the God of heaven. Now that phrase is a way of saying that there is no one who is comparable to Yahweh or the Lord. He is unique in power and authority and all other gods, if there be such, are inferior to the Lord. He is supreme. He has no rivals. 
And this God made the sea and the dry land. Notice how that part of Jonah's confession is immediately relevant. If he made the sea, then who is responsible for this violent storm that has overtaken them? Of course, the Lord. He is the one that they need to look to uh, to deal with this storm that has come upon them. It's interesting that when Jonah introduces the Lord to pagans, the first thing he says is that he's the maker of heaven and earth. He's the creator. And this is something of a theme in scripture. When God's people share the character of the Lord with outsiders, the first thing they say about the Lord is he made everything, he's in control of everything, and you owe him your complete allegiance. It's good for us to recognize that, I think, as we deal with perhaps an increasingly pagan culture where people don't have basic categories for thinking about God. Good place to start is, who is God? Who is the Lord? He's the maker of heaven and earth. So we see Paul doing this in Acts 14 when he's at Lystra, talking to pagans. Acts 14, 15. Paul says, we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. That's the basic confession of faith. God made everything. And then Acts 17, when he's in Athens, Paul says, verses 24 and 25, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. This is who the Lord is. That's what Jonah is saying. This is the God that we are talking about. He has no beginning. He has no end. He exists of himself. He has life in himself in contrast to all of his creatures. He needs absolutely nothing from his creatures in contrast to pagan gods who need sacrifices. God is utterly self-sufficient. To put it another way, God does not need to go outside of himself to find blessedness or happiness or fulfillment. God is fulfilled, satisfied in himself. He has everything he needs in himself. All things come from him He creates out of nothing by his powerful word. He brings all things into existence. The brightest star and the lowest insect, all of those things are summoned into existence by God. They all belong to him. We belong to him. All things come from him and exist for him. That is who the Lord is. And he is in control over all things. He's not a territorial God who can be limited to a a little stretch of land somewhere. This is the God who made everything, owns everything, and is present everywhere and rules over all, all of it. That is the Lord. That's the, God, that's the God we're talking about, Jonah says to these sailors. We're talking about Yahweh. I think the response we should have to that God is well captured by Justin Lee in a recent article called Holy Fear. He writes, He who tamed Leviathan and covers Sinai in holy darkness who laid the foundations of the earth and shut up the doors of the sea, whose mind is an abyss of mystery, how can we discover his eye fixed upon us and not tremble? When you know the Lord for who he is and you see the majesty, the holiness, the purity and glory of his character, the proper response is to tremble with a reverent awe. And that's what the mariners do. When they get a glimpse of that God and realize that Jonah is in rebellion against that God, verse 10, they're astonished. 
what is this that you have done? And their astonishment arises from the recognition that to disobey this God is an exceedingly great sin. Jonah tells them in verse 10 that's exactly what he's done. He told them that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. When they realize that Jonah has violated the command of the Lord, they're horrified and astonished. Now, I think if these mariners had been 21st century Americans, their response may have been a little different. They would have been astonished, but not by Jonah's guilt, but by the severity of God's storm, his justice. This tends to be the problem that many modern people have. I don't believe in a God of judgment, a God who punishes sin. I don't know if I can believe in a God who sins such violent storms. What would have astonished them is the severity of the punishment, not the, not the weightiness of the sin. And the, re, the, the difference between the ancient mariners and 21st century Americans is that the ancient mariners, were, they caught a glimpse of the glory of God. When they saw that Jonah rebelled against no one less than the maker of heaven and earth, they trembled. They did not see God's judgment or the storm as too severe. They saw his sin as being very weighty. If anything, God is merciful to be patient and not immediately consume them. For many people, especially those who have not been in the church or been taught, they have small views of God. He's a kind of benevolent Santa Claus in the clouds who wants good for everybody. And they can't see how that kind of God would judge anyone. And they're right, except that's not the God of Scripture. The God of Scripture is the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. And to sin against him because of his greatness is exceedingly terrible. That's exactly what these mariners discover. They're appalled that Jonah could sin against this God, that he had the temerity to sin against this God. If we want a right understanding of sin, we have to have a right understanding of God. We see the hideousness of sin only to the degree that we see the greatness of God. We see this a little bit in human relationships. If a boy hits his brother, it's bad, it's a sin. If a boy hits his mother, if a boy hits his father, now the hideousness, the weight of that sin is amplified dramatically. Why? Because of the greatness of the person injured. Right? The stakes are much higher when a child hits his mother. Now consider how great the stakes are when we sin against a God who is infinite in wisdom, goodness, purity, power, justice. To sin against that God is to say, God, you aren't great, your ways are not wise, and you do not deserve my allegiance and obedience. It is to trample on the glory of God. It is to treat him with contempt. This is the thing that should grieve us most when we sin. A lot of times we, we measure the weight of sin by the painful uh, consequences that it unleashes in our lives. Sin destroys relationships. It destroys families. It destroys our health in certain situations. We understand how devastating sin can be in terms of its horizontal consequences. And that's right, and that's true, and that's biblical. To rebel against the Creator is not to live a full life. It is to, be, uh, to live an impoverished miserable, difficult life. But we measure the seriousness of sin not by the painful consequences it unleashes, but by the greatness of the character of God. When we realize that in rebelling against the word of the Lord, I have dishonored my creator, that is the thing that should make us shudder. 
I have failed to give him the honor and the praise that is his due. I have despised my maker. That is the thing that should cause us pain and sorrow. And perhaps the fact that we've diminished the glory of God in the eyes of others when we sin. This is the thing that should weigh on us. Is that the case for you? When you rebel against God, what is it that you grieve about fundamentally? Oh Lord, don't let my life get hard now that I've sinned. Sure, we can pray that. Lord, don't deal with me according to my sins. That's fair, Psalm 103. But fundamentally, our hearts should break because we have failed to give honor and glory to the God who made us and saved us. One way to assess your understanding of the majesty of God is to look at your response when you sin. Is it just, oh, I'm scared of the consequences now? Or is it my heart is broken because I've despised God? Nothing less than that is at stake when we sin against God. So that's the first thing we see. There are no small sins against a great God. Second thing we notice is that the disobedience of God's people brings misery rather than blessing to unbelievers. So, at this point in the narrative, the sailors have gotten some answers. They know who the guilty party is, and they know what he's done. But now, there's a natural uh, third question to ask, and that is, what do we do about it? What do you do with the disobedient prophet? Uh, So they ask, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? It's clear that his guilt has brought in the storm. What do we need to do? And here's Jonah's response. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. The solution, says Jonah, is to take me and hurl me overboard, and then all will be well. Notice the use of the word hurl in this passage. Initially, God hurls the storm because of Jonah's guilt, and then they hurl cargo overboard. But the really decisive and effective hurling is the hurling of Jonah. That's the hurling that will stop the first hurling, the hurling of the storm. That's the only solution. Now, there's some debate about what Jonah means when he makes this proposal. One way to read this, and there's some merit to this reading, is when Jonah says, throw me overboard, you could read this as Jonah is so committed to not obeying God that he would rather drown and die than go to Nineveh. Throw me overboard. There's no way I'm going to Nineveh. Throw me overboard. Let me die rather than go and preach as you told me to preach to Nineveh. And this reading gains plausibility if we look at the end of the book. At the end of the book, God does something that infuriates Jonah. The thing that he's he's dreading throughout the whole book happens. And Jonah says, kill me. It's better to be dead than to have this happen. So if we read back from chapter 4 into chapter 1, it's possible that's exactly what Jonah's motivation is here. I'd rather die than preach to these pagans. However, as compelling as that view, you know, that view has some merits, I think there's a, a more compelling view. Uh, my reading is that Jonah recognizes he deserves death. He has defied God Almighty. He has run from his word. And he recognizes that nothing less than a watery grave is appropriate. He deserves judgment. And the only way the storm will stop is if the demands of justice are satisfied. To me, that, is, that fits the context better. The whole scene thus, uh, thus far has had the feel of like a judicial proceeding. Who's guilty? What have they done? Twice the guilt of Jonah has been emphasized in chapter, I'm sorry, verse 7 and verse 12. 
So the whole thing feels a little bit like a trial. Who's guilty? What have they done? What do they deserve? And for that reason, I think what's going on here is Jonah gets that he's defied the Lord, and there's only one next step, which is to throw him overboard to his watery grave. That's what the demands of justice are. That's the cost of rebelling against the Lord. There's a kind of despairing recognition of his guilt. And he says, this is the only way that it will get better. Because of Jonah's guilt, it's not just his life that is imperiled, but the life of every pagan sailor on that boat. And this is ironic. The one person on the ship who knows Yahweh, has a relationship with him, um, and is the, in fact the prophet of the Lord is Jonah. You would expect that Jonah would be a presence of blessing and help to these sailors. The irony, of course, is that the sailors, the pagans, suffer precisely because of the prophet of the Lord. It's his presence in their midst that makes life not good, but difficult for them. This is doubly ironic when you take a step back and consider the story of Scripture as a whole. God chooses Abraham in Genesis 12 to be a blessing to the nations. He chooses Abraham and his offspring to be a blessing to the world. Through Abraham, through his seed, God would reverse the curse of sin and bring gladness, blessing, restoration to the nations, to outsiders. In view of that promise that God makes to Abraham, the misery that Jonah inflicts on these poor sailors is deeply ironic. He's intended to be an instrument of blessing to the pagans. Instead, he's a source of misery. And why? Because he's in rebellion against the Lord. And the teaching is uh, simple. When God's people rebel against the Lord and fail to submit to him, they bring misery, not blessing, to the world around them. And one of the reasons for this is when God's people rebel against him, they diminish the glory of God in the eyes of the world. They make him look small and contemptible, not trustworthy. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 2, verse 24, quoting Isaiah, says, The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, speaking of Jews. God's name is held in contempt because of your hypocritical failure to submit to the law. He doesn't have credibility in the eyes of the world because of your disobedience. We need to recognize that our rebellion against the Lord doesn't just affect us and our relationship with God. It affects other people. The fact is, unbelievers in our lives, our neighbors, coworkers, friends, family members, are watching. They know, or at least they should know, that we profess allegiance to Jesus, and they're watching to see, is your attitude, or your words, is your conduct in alignment with what you say you believe? And when we live hypocritically and inconsistently, we diminish the glory of God in their eyes. We need to understand that sin doesn't just affect us. Sin is constantly preaching falsehoods about God to our spouses, children, and the people around us. The converse side of the coin is that when we do submit to God, we prove to be a blessing to others. Not least because in our obedience to the Lord, we reflect his character to the world. Look at Matthew 5, verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So when your good works shine like light in this dark world, people will look at you, and then through you, Jesus is saying, they will behold God's glory and give him praise. One of the ways, one of the primary means God uses 
To commend the gospel to outsiders is through the wise, obedient, sacrificial living of his people. And when the world looks at us, we become like windows through which they see God himself. And they are drawn to him in repentance and faith and obedience. Do you understand how great the stakes are for us? It's not just a question of my own relationship with God. It's a question of reflecting God accurately to the world around us. Does that weigh upon you? Is that how you live? Would you say God is glorified in the eyes of others because of the way you live? As we consider what it means to display the glory of God through good works, I think one good place to start is to consider the, the fragment, social fragmentation in the world around us. We live in a world with lots of lonely people. There isn't strong community. Many people are relatively affluent, uh, but they don't have anybody that they can call when they come home. They, their airplane lands in the airport, they don't know who to call. They've got to call an Uber, right? They're affluent, but lonely. Uh, it is increasingly countercultural and radical in this climate to offer someone a dinner invitation and say, hey, Sit down, have a meal with me. Let's get to know each other. Let's spend time together. One way to display God's glory is to develop non-superficial relationships with those who don't know Jesus. Of course, there are many other ways. And we are called to exercise wisdom to consider how our lives can reflect God's glorious character to others. But one good place to start is to look for all the lonely people, as that Beatles song puts it, all the lonely people in the, in the world and invite them, eat with them, love them. Now, the sailors are reluctant to listen to Jonah. Jonah says, there's only one way out of this storm. Throw me overboard. Nevertheless, verse 13, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. They, they want to help him out. They want to deposit his body on land and not throw him overboard. But their efforts are thwarted by the fact that the sea is becoming more and more violent against them. And so finally, they turn to the Lord in prayer. Notice the contrast here in verse um, four or five, uh, they're praying to the pagan gods. At this point in the narrative, they're not praying to the Lord. Oh Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O oh Lord, have done as it pleased you. Like God, don't hold us accountable for this, your prophet and his blood, but you're the one who is demanding that he be hurled overboard. We're trying, Lord, to put him on land, but you won't let it. It's not your will. And so their attempt is thwarted, and there's only, thing they, there's only one thing left for them to do, and that is pick up Jonah and then hurl him overboard. Imagine for a moment what that, what that change must have been like. They're no longer whipped by the violent winds. The howling that they've been listening to for hours suddenly stops. The waves are stilled and everything is calm as the sea takes Jonah. One man dies and the crew lives. The one dies and the many live. Now, as we're reading this passage as Christians, like our, our interpretive instincts is to go, that's like Jesus, right? Uh, G, the, the one dies that the many might live. The reason the sailors don't perish is because Jonah perishes. That's like Jesus. But are we justified in seeing this moment in Jonah's life as an anticipation of Jesus? I would say I think so. Relatively confident that this is so. And a crucial piece of evidence is what we're told in Matthew 12, 40. 
The Gospels themselves draw a connection between Jonah and certain aspects of his experience and Jesus. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So the Gospel writers and Jesus, they see a connection between Jonah's experiences and Jesus. And Jonah's experiences in certain ways anticipate Jesus. And therefore, I think it's right as we look at this passage to see a foreshadowing of the work of Christ. Uh, Jesus was thrown into the ultimate storm, the storm of God's judgment, that the waves of wrath would depart and we might experience the peaceful sea of God's acceptance and love. Of course, the, the crucial difference between Jesus and Jonah is that Jonah was guilty. It's a guilty man who was hurled overboard to save sinners, to save pagans from perishing. And in the case of Jesus, it was the innocent Son of God who died for the guilty, that they might be rescued from the storms of God's judgment and brought safely to the other side to a calm sea. If this morning you are resting in Jesus, the storms of judgment have passed and the sea is calm. You have peace with God. Romans 5.1, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Today you need to recognize that because Jesus was hurled overboard, because he took the judgment that we deserve, we have peace with God. It is well with us. And if this morning you have not placed your faith in Jesus, uh, you're, in, you're invited to take shelter from the storm by trusting in Jesus as your Savior. Through him, your sins, your guilt before God can be washed away and you can enter into a relationship with him. Believe in Jesus and live. And significantly, we should note also that Jesus does what Jonah doesn't do in the sense that he, his innocent suffering for sinners brings the blessing of God to them in the way that Israel was meant to do but ultimately fails to do. Paul connects these themes in Galatians 3, verses 13 through 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that promise of blessing that God made to Abraham in Genesis 12, that promise comes to the nations, comes to the Gentiles through the suffering and sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. In him we are blessed, we are pardoned, and we are welcomed as sons and daughters of God. The sea is now calm, but paradoxically, the sailors are still frightened, verse 16. And you see this in the Gospels too. When Jesus commands the waves to be stilled, the irony is that even after everything is quiet, the disciples are more scared. Why? Because they've seen the power of God. And so here, these pagans are in awe of the Lord. And they presumably, when they come to land, offer sacrifices and make vows to the Lord. Now, one question that arises is, are they converted are they now worshipers of the Lord instead of pagan gods? And while I don't know that we can be 100% sure, I think it is very likely. A crucial bit of evidence for me is the parallel between verse 16 and verse 9. In verse 9, Jonah identifies himself as one who fears the Lord, right? And this is how Jews are often characterized, those who fear the Lord. But what are the pagans doing in verse 16? The men feared the Lord exceedingly. And that verbal parallel suggests that they have begun to fear the Lord. Not just terrified of the storm, but they actually revere him. This is further reinforced by the fact that they pray to him. 
They make sacrifices to the Lord and vows once they're safe, like a pious Jew might. All of these are indications that these non-Jews, these non-Israelites, have submitted themselves to the Lord. But if that's the case, notice the irony. Jonah runs from God so he wouldn't have to preach to the pagans. And in taking a a, a disobedient detour, he ends up fulfilling the plan of God anyway. You don't want to preach to those pagans, fine, you'll preach to other pagans. But one way or another, I'm going to make myself known. God makes himself known through Jonah's disobedience to these uh, men who otherwise wouldn't have known the Lord. God uses Jonah's disobedience to accomplish his purposes and reveal himself to the mariners. And actually, as we take a step back from this narrative, that's really what we see here. There is a conflict between the Lord and the prophet of the Lord. Jonah does not want to preach to the people of Nineveh, uh, and, and he is running from God, but God's running faster. And God hurls a storm upon the sea. He exposes his guilt to the mariners when the mariners try to deposit him nicely on the land. God won't allow it by continuing the, the storm and causing it to become more fierce. God is determined that his prophet should be thrown overboard and ultimately redirected in the right direction. Jonah runs from God, but God runs faster. That's the emphasis. That's the thrust of this passage. Jonah may want to resist the will of the Lord, but that will proves to be irresistible. God reigns from heaven, and his purposes will be accomplished. He does what he wants in heaven and on earth. In contrast to pagan gods whose purposes might be frustrated by rebellious creatures, God's purposes come to pass. What he wills, he accomplishes. God is Lord over all things. And that truth just resounds in this passage. It is the will of God finally, not the will of Jonah, that is accomplished. Recognizing God's supreme authority and power is an encouragement to us at all kinds of levels. First of all, it means that evil has no future. All of the wretched Wicked things that we see in the world around us will in due course pass away. God's purposes will triumph. His people will rejoice in judgment upon evil and wickedness and the renewal of all things. This is the foundation of our hope. It is certain and incontestable that God's purposes will triumph. And so we don't lose heart. When we look at all the darkness around us, we don't become discouraged because we are confident that he's in in control. But secondly, God's Lordship over his creation means that his kingdom will triumph. God has willed to save sinners, and he will save sinners. His kingdom will expand. The reign of his son Jesus will increase more and more as people acknowledge him as king and submit to him and trust in him. His kingdom will advance not because of the competence of his people, the sophistication of his people, the holiness of his people. It will advance because he has willed that it should be so. God will win People will be drawn from all tribes, tongues, and nations, and his church will be victorious because that is what he has decreed as king. One of my favorite illustrations of this is there's a, there's a moment in Charles Spurgeon's ministry in the 19th century. Uh, for those of you who may not be familiar, Charles Spurgeon was a very famous Baptist preacher in London, 19th century. And on one occasion, he was testing out the acoustics of a church. Went up to the pulpit and... Uh, he quoted Isaiah, and this passage that he quoted was uh, Isaiah 45:22. So, testing the sound system. Nobody's in the church building for the most part, empty. But Spurgeon is testing the sound system, and he says, "Turn to me and be saved, all you the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other." Now, it just so happened that in the church, 
uh, there, there was a man working in that church. I don't know if he was cleaning or what he was doing, but he happened to be there. He wasn't a believer. And he heard Spurgeon quoting Isaiah, and he turned from his sin and believed in Jesus. Spurgeon was testing the sound system, but God was converting sinners. Uh, God has willed for his kingdom to triumph. Jesus uses the parable of a mustard seed. It begins as the smallest seed in the garden, but then it grows and sprouts and becomes the biggest tree in the garden. God will draw his people to himself and the church will be victorious because that is what he has decreed and that is what he wills. That should be a tremendous source of encouragement to us as we look at our puny efforts to help others know Jesus and grow in Jesus. It's easy to get discouraged. But our confidence comes from the fact that oh, he is Lord. He is going to accomplish his purposes for his glory. And so he's going to take my puny efforts to talk to other people about Jesus, my puny efforts to disciple my kids and shape my spouse. He's going to take all of that and he's going to bless it and he's going to use it to advance his good purposes. He's going to do it for the honor of his name and the good of those around me. It's meant to encourage us to be more bold and more confident, not because we have what it takes, but because our God is Lord and he will accomplish his purposes. So let us live with the confidence, the joy, and the peace that come from resting in him as our Lord. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we rejoice in the fact that absolute power meets with absolute goodness in you. All that you will is right and good and wise and your purposes for the world, and indeed your purposes for us and individuals can't be thwarted. Father, we rest in this this morning. We praise you for your faithfulness. We ask that you give, her, give us a bigger conception of your majesty and might, and that that would drive us toward a more confident engagement with others for your namesake. Amen.